Would you please join me for a word of prayer? Lord, I'm thankful for the change of seasons, and in particular, Advent. And Lord, I, I'm also grateful for the words of hope contained in this book. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I preach now, and for each one of us, that we would have bigger thinking about your kingdom. Come, Holy Spirit. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So are you one of those people who, when you go into a building, you lose all sense of compass direction? You know, some people have no idea which way is north. Other people are keenly aware of it. Are you aware of which direction you are facing right now? That is the east. There is Highway 17 over there. And here's a hint. You're in a church that's a traditional church. Since the time of Constantine, Christians have been building physical structures, church buildings to worship in, and they've, if they were able, which is usually the case, they pointed it toward the east that way. And the reason they did it is because if we're going to take a literal interpretation, which there are reasons not necessarily to do so, but if Christ is going to come, he's coming from the east. That's where he left, in the east. And so we worship facing that way because it speaks to the hope that Christians have. As far back as the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 8 through 12 of Ezekiel's writing, he has a prophetic vision of the temple, and he sees an inner view of the horrible idolatries that are going on inside God's temple. And the, the cherubim, the angels, they have these wheels, and it's a, it's a glorious image, and the wheels start turning, and they rise up from the Holy of Holies, and God's glory is above them. And there's a slow procession out of the temple, going through one door to the next to the next, and then they leave the holy city and go out to the mountain to the east. God's glory leaves his temple and goes out to the east, and we're waiting for him to return. When the new temple was dedicated, the second temple, and they prayed, his glory did not descend upon it like he had on the first temple. The closest thing we've got is the Son of God, Jesus, comes and he rides in on, on a triumphal entry on a donkey during the Passion Week on, Pat, on Palm Sunday, but the people, they, they praise him, but then they, they turn around and he's rejected that week. And he laments from the mountain on the east over the city of how much he wanted to, to, uh, to gather it together and it rejected him. And so we are still waiting for his return from the east, that eastern side. Now on the, it's called the Mount of Olives. And it's actually higher than the city itself. So if you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem, you usually see the Temple Mount, you see the gold dome of the rock that's there. That's always a, an aerial photo, but it's not because it's taken from a plane or a helicopter, it's because it's taken from the Mount of Olives, which is higher. It's the hill over to the east of the, of the city. Literally to this day, it's like that. And when Jesus was resurrected, he spent about 40 days walking around with people and, and sharing about the kingdom, and then he went out to the Mount of Olives, which was often the place he took his disciples, and it was there that he ascended uh, up to the, to the Father in heaven. And if you go in the Bible to the book of Acts, you find in, in the first chapter what happens there. It's actually kind of, a, it's kind of an odd um, description because Jesus speaks of the kingdom and they ask if he's going to restore it at that point, And he says, it's not for you to know the times or dates, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem, but all the way to the ends of the earth. And as he's speaking to them, it says that he started to ascend and he just literally rose up off the Mount of Olives into the clouds until they couldn't see him anymore. And all the disciples are standing there like this. 
They're just looking up. And then two men in white robes, presumably angels, appear, and they say this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I, I can't tell if they were smiling when they said it, but it's a comical image to me of the guys just standing there like this, like they like lost almost, and these angels are saying, why are you staring into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. The mount called Olivet is the Mount of Olives. So he's over on that mountain to the east, and he ascends to the Father there, and the angels say, he's going to come in a similar manner. But go back into the city, go about what you're supposed to be doing. And so we worship, Christians worship facing east because of that. We expect Christ will return, and presumably from the east. So um, we're in this season of Advent. The word literally means the coming of Christ, Adventus. It's a Latin word. And we're praying, come Lord Jesus, come back to us. And our sermon series for these four weeks of Advent will be on, on the topic of awaiting our King. We are waiting for Him to come back. And as I mentioned, we're picking up all of the readings in the lectionary because they're so clearly connected, especially this Sunday when we're focused on the second coming of Christ. Now, Advent is backwards in a sense, chronologically. The first two Sundays of Advent, we focus on the second coming of Christ, the future return. And then the last two, the third and fourth Sundays of Advent, we focus on his first coming, and it leads us into Christmas and his birth narrative and the feast of his incarnation. So it's kind of chronologically reversed for us, but it makes sense why to do that. And each one of these texts are pointing to Christ's return. Now, it's weird as a preacher to preach on this because usually I talk about what God has done, but today it's more about what he's going to do. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in that spot of I don't exactly know what it's going to look like. In fact, the prophets don't exactly know either. And so the text I've chosen today is the Zechariah one. Of the four I had to pick from, you know, Psalm 50 talks about God coming to judge the earth. Luke 21 says the Son of, Jesus says the Son of Man will come again on clouds and uh, to learn a lesson from the fig tree when it starts to bring a leaf forward, you know that the season is coming to the time when it will have fruit. Uh, the first Thessalonians one talks about hearts being blameless in holiness at Christ's coming. And, but I picked the Zechariah one. Um, in part because I felt like I needed to explain that very graphic image of what's going to happen when a city has uh, a siege and the terrible things that occur in such situations. And the New Testament authors picked up the prophet Zechariah and found it incredibly helpful in pointing to the coming of their Messiah. In fact, one scholar said that he, he counted 54 textual allusions in 67 New Testament places most of which are in the book of Revelation. So you can find all sorts of things in Zechariah that the New Testament authors both directly quoted or seems like they are making an allusion to, a reference to in some way. So Zechariah, let me explain who he is. He's one of the post-exile prophets, which means he either, he probably was born in Babylon. If you remember last year, we studied Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar exiled all the people into Babylon. They were there for about 70 years well, he's one of the prophets that comes back when Cyrus, the Persian, defeats the Babylonians, and he decides to appease every god represented, and so he sends the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and offer prayers for him to their god, and, he, and, he, and it provides an opportunity. Actually, the Lord is using Cyrus 
to accomplish his purpose. But Zechariah is one of the prophets who is speaking in that moment. And his buddy, his colleague, Haggai, another prophet, Haggai was saying, you've started rebuilding the temple and you've not finished. It's like half done. Finish the temple. Show that God is with you. And then Zechariah is saying, now renew your covenant faithfulness. You're acting just like you did before the exile. Be faithful to God. And so using graphic images that I'm sure he was told about while he was in Babylon, he describes what happens in a siege to a city. Horrible things described right there. Plunder, rape, exile, death. It's a horrible thing. And he's saying, you don't want that to happen again. Clean up your act. He wants to get their attention. It's, it's got a shock value to it. Now, recognize also, though, that he is speaking in the apocalyptic genre. So he's using imagery that is supposed to evoke pictures in your mind. It's supposed to get your attention, but it's not necessarily a one-to-one literal thing. And a lot of us read the Bible and we think, it says it in the Bible, it must be true, I believe it, word for word exactly, and fail to recognize the artistic um, genres that were used by the authors. He is describing something in the best language he can to communicate to the people something of importance. So it's sometimes literal, partially literal. I think what he described about that city probably happened in AD 70 when the Romans came in and destroyed all of Jerusalem. Jesus predicted that would happen. But this is, has a longer scope. A lot of times with the prophets, they have prophetic foreshortening, where their time scale gets truncated like this, and they see as one event which, which something that will actually play out in a much longer time. And you've heard me use this illustration of the old covenant age and the new covenant age have actually overlapped. And so there are things playing out in this season that we're in. We're in the overlap, the already but not yet. Christ has already come, but he has not yet fully consummated everything. And I don't have to point very far to show you the problems of the world right now. If Christ has come, why are there so many problems? Well, because he hasn't come back yet. He hasn't finished what he started in a sense. So the prophetic writings in this apocalyptic genre are giving images, but they're cosmic in scope. They're much bigger. They're longer. And so a question that we have to ask is, what should we expect when he does come back? Should I be saying, come Lord Jesus, will this be a good thing or not? And you really have to look at what he has to say about the day of the Lord. And it starts off with a tough word. And I want to point out a few things of what to expect when Christ returns. The first one is this, judgment will start at the Lord's own house. That's what Haggai, or that's what Zechariah here is talking about. And there will be a, a purification going on where God will judge his own house He will purify those that are faithful of the remnant, and others will be cast out. It's a scary thought, and St. Augustine said it this way, there are those among us who are not of us, and there are those of us who are not among us. Are you a believer? Is Jesus your Lord? Have you given him your heart? Are you walking with him day by day? If you are, then, then you're part of that remnant, and expect him to move you more and more toward holiness. And if you're not, change that right now. Pray. Give your heart to Jesus. Become a Christian. Be part of the remnant that he is going to call to be his people forever. It's a frightening thought, but I think it's helpful for us to have that kind of uh, awakening. God gathers the nations and brings them in judgment against his people, is what it says in verse 2. 
I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. And then all that other stuff that happens in such a situation. It's scary, and half the people are cut off. In fact, judgment does start in the Lord's own house with the Lord's own leader. If you back up to chapter 13, it's where it talks about the shepherd, the good shepherd being struck and the sheep scattered. Jesus himself quoted this and said, this is what's about to happen to you when he spoke to his disciples. And he's quoting Zechariah chapter 13. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is what the Lord of hosts says this. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. And, and then there's a, a bunch of people that are cut off and perish. But then it says, and I will put this third that are left into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. Then they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Is that you? I hope that's you. I want that to be you. Because it's good if that's you. Advent is a time to repent and renew our covenant faithfulness to the Lord and say, the Lord is my God. I want to be your people. That's what this penitential season is about, returning to the Lord. And he's calling his people to holiness. But the first thing to expect when Christ returns is judgment beginning with his own house. Now, another thing that's really encouraging is the Lord fights for his remnant. Look at verse 3 in chapter 14. Um, by the way, this is, if you want to look at a pew Bible, it's on page 799. But in verse 3, he says, but the rest of the people, meaning those that are still in the holy city, keep in mind, this is apocalyptic imagery. The city, all the nations have come. They've wiped out and exiled half the people, but half are still in the city. And he says, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations when he fights on a day of battle. Okay, you don't have to stock up your arms. You don't have to uh, start doing military training. You don't have to get ready to fight at all. He will fight. The Lord will do this. The people simply are saved by him. And he does it all. This is really encouraging. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So picture the Mount of Olives splitting and part of it moving a little bit north and part of it moving a little bit south. And so now there is a straight valley that goes from the holy city out to the Dead Sea. I wonder if Jesus had this in mind when he said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved. I wonder if he's thinking about this language. But here's the thing about Jerusalem. When cities attacked it, they did not have a good flight out of the city to the east because it goes uphill. The Mount of Olives is right there. And then it goes down through all kinds of rocky, uh, rocky and craggy places. It looks like Afghanistan. It's totally deserty, rock. Very few things can live there. And it goes all the way down to the Dead Sea in Jericho. The Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level. It's the lowest place on the earth. And the Holy City is up close to 3,000 feet of elevation. And so that's the road. And you have to go over the Mount of Olives. He's saying, I will part the Mount of Olives. There will be a valley for you to flee out. I will provide the way. The Lord is standing on the top. It's like, come on, I will rescue you out of this. I will bring you to myself. I will provide a way for you. The Lord is the one who does this. The point here is God will fight for you in that day. And I don't think it's too far to see the grace of Jesus in this with that idea of the shepherd is, is the one who is struck and takes the judgment, and so that those who are in him 
don't have to fear the wrath of God. You're forgiven. You're righteous in Christ. So on that day, as Jesus says, lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. It's your day. You don't have to cower in fear. You can lift up your heads because Christ is the one who has fought for you and defeated sin and death on the cross, and so therefore you're forgiven. Therefore God sees you as righteous. Therefore he rescues you out of whatever the war looks like into safety through his valley that he makes for you. So judgment starts with the Lord's house. Second, the Lord fights for his remnant. And then third, look at the scope. It's cosmic in scale. This is a, like I said, an apocalyptic genre. It's, it's big. It talks about the heavens. It talks about light changing. I mean, there's a day in here that does not have night anymore. Verses 6 and 7, uh, it says this, On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Revelation talks about no need for the sun or moon. The Lord himself, his glory will be the light we need. His city will always be lit because his glory will be there. Whatever darkness represents, which is evil and unknowing and secrecy and sin, gone. Purity, holiness, brightness, light. That's the image here. It's cosmic in scope. And this actually harkens us back to the day of creation when God separated the light from the darkness and the land from the water. There's a type of recreation going on when Christ returns. He will make all things new, as he says. And I love verse 8 where it talks about living water. It says, on that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. So some of it will go through that new valley right down into the Dead Sea and make it alive. No more full of minerals and dead. It will now have living water coming into it. And the other way, it will go out to the Mediterranean. There will be an east-west river flowing out of the holy city. Now, I know you're picturing that literally, but it's more figurative than that. Jesus talked about out of your hearts will flow streams of living water. He talks about you, the people of God, as the new temple of God. But I suspect there'll be some literal components of it as well. And on the other side of that day, we're going to look back and go, oh, that's what Zechariah meant. Now it makes perfect sense. I don't know what he's literally going to do with the holy city. But it's real interesting to go there and walk on those streets and wonder about it. But there's living water flowing out in both directions in life. It's living water. The Lord, verse 9, will be king over all. Back in the Garden of Eden, he placed the first people in a perfect environment, almost perfect. There was a serpent, and we don't know the backstory on him yet. I think that'll be sorted too. But there, was, there were two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. That was the fertile crescent, as we call it in sociology. It was where life began. There will be this living water. New life will be coming out of God's new city, and he will be the Lord of all. And verse 9, I think, is probably the most important verse in here. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. Why, is it, why do they say one? The Jews certainly knew that he was one. They say in the Shema from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall worship the Lord your God. They know there's one God, but all the peoples of the earth don't. There are millions of gods that are worshipped. On that day, there will be one God worshipped. All the other ones will be gone. Not that they're real, but they will, all the people that are left will worship that one God. In fact, the armies that, according to Zechariah, the armies that God summons to, to bring this judgment on his city, whoever is left from his battle will then worship him. All the nations will be turned into worshippers of God. 
anyone who is left. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is what we're looking forward to. You see how it's cosmic in scope? It's huge. He's recreating everything. All things are being made new. This is the hope that we have. It's why in the creed we say he will come to judge the living and the dead, all people, and his kingdom will have no end. And we will all see that day, whether in this body, in this life, or from glory after we die. We will get to see that day. So it asks me a question now. What is your worldview? Everyone has one, whether it's articulated or not, but your worldview answers questions like, what is the problem with the world? What is the solution to that problem? How do you answer those two questions? We look around at a world that's broken in many ways, right? We see it all over the place. And in the affluent West, where we are, we have resources, we have freedoms, we have comfort, leisure. One of the solutions to that problem is simply indulge, eat, drink, and be merry. Try and eke as much pleasure and joy out of this life as possible. The other option is despair. Despair. Curse God and die, as it says. People are in real despair because their hope is in this world and it keeps failing. Even those of us that have some good seasons are met by problems. Family strife, cancer, sickness, our own eventual death. And that causes us to, to not be able to indulge very long. And wise thinkers, philosophies, uh, philosophers of the ages, Tolstoy was one of them, thought, well, what should I do? I can't get enough pleasure out of this life. The best thing is suicide. And it's a great tragedy that the numbers are on the rise here. And the Christian gospel has another solution. It's not indulge. It's not despair. It's hope. We have hope because of what Zechariah is talking about. We have hope because our king is coming back. He's going to fix everything. All the problems will be gone. And so what that does is it gives us the ability to endure for a while, knowing that it's temporary. It's only for a little while. It's for this life, for us, until Christ returns. It might be today. Jesus says, know the signs. Look at the fig tree. Oh, it's fully in bloom. There is no, there's nothing left in Scripture that has to happen for Christ to come back. He could come today. And so he's saying, live as though I'm going to come today, but know that I'll come like a thief in the night. So you won't know when I'm going to come. So you have to be always ready. That's the state we live in. But Jesus says, lift up your heads. Paul prays for our love for others to increase, that we would be blameless in our hearts and holiness for the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians. So I want to encourage you to use the season of Advent well. Repent and return to the Lord. Renew your hope in what is coming. Let your vision become bigger. We're very parochial. We look at our city, our nation, our party, our things, instead of cosmic scope. Zechariah is inviting us to lift up our eyes, to look a little bigger, to expect actually more. This life can't satisfy you. There is so much more coming, and it's in Christ. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, as we just sang. So if, if you're looking for something very specific, what to do, sign up for the devotional that our team made. You'll get an email every morning starting tomorrow morning. You can sign up on the webpage. And it will give you readings and devotional thoughts to help you focus on these truths, the hope that the Christian message has. Don't despair. Don't indulge. Hope in Christ. Grow closer to him. Let your love for others be increased by God's spirit in you. Grow in holiness. Be refined. Invite the refiner to refine you and to help you become more like him. If you do that, this will be an incredible advent for you. 
And by the time we get to Christmas in four weeks, you will be so excited about Christ's return. Praise God for that. And I'm going to pray now and invite you to do a little business with the Lord and, um, and come back to Him or come to Him for the first time. Lord, forgive us for despairing or trying to be satisfied with pleasures in this life. Lord, I ask that you'd give us the hope that Zechariah talks about. Lord, even give us excitement about it because we know how good you are. Lord, I pray for us to be people of your kingdom in this life, to represent you well, to use this life to become more like you. Lord, would you speak to us now, individually? What must, what must we do, Lord, to be more like you? How can we please you? We want to see your glory, and we want it to be reflected in our lives. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.